If you would please turn in your Bibles this evening to Galatians chapter 2 as we're continuing our study through the Word of God. And as I said last time, Paul's letter to the churches in the region of Galatia, these areas were like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. These are places that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. And Paul is, is attacking um, those that are coming against the true gospel message. They were presenting a gospel of works and they were basically Judaizers, Jews who were also believing in Jesus, but also following the law. And they were spreading this false doctrine to the Galatians, and the Galatians were receiving it. And Paul did not teach them a salvation that was based upon keeping the law, doing works. He taught them a salvation that was based upon the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ. This message was revealed to Paul by the Lord. He spent three years in the deserts of Arabia. And this is not some new doctrine. You know, people go, well, that's, you know, the New Testament. The Old Testament was a salvation by works. You know, you had to do the animal sacrifices. You had to do this. You shouldn't do that. Not at all. And we'll see that as we journey through the letter to the Galatians. That even in the Old Testament, it was about grace. Not the works of the law. The law could never save anyone. But here come these Judaizers, and they're mixing law and grace together. And they're saying they had the authority to do this. And Paul says, hey, look, I have the authority to bring forth the gospel message because this message came from God. He's the one who's called me from my mother's womb. And at the appointed time, he opened my heart. He opened my eyes to Jesus. These were not the words of men. These were not the ideas of men. These were not the philosophies of men. This was the word of God. And again, like I said, it's consistent throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we need to be wise in the days we're living in. There's a battle going on out there. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it's getting tougher and tougher. There's all kinds of new Christian ideas out there, what we are to believe, what we are to accept. And they're not scriptural. How many worship people are coming forth saying homosexuality is fine? There's nothing wrong with it. God really doesn't speak much about it in Romans 1. We just misread what Romans 1 really says. Well, I'm sorry, but God says what he means and means what he says, and I'm going to listen to him than the words of men. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul warned the Colossian church. He said, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you're complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Paul's saying, pay attention, guys. Wake up. Stay on guard because there are ideas out there that people are putting forth that are empty, they're deceitful, they're not of God. They are the traditions of men. And we have the word of God, which is truth. It doesn't lie to us. And, And the wonderful thing is, it says that we're complete in him. Isn't that wonderful? We don't need the philosophies of the world. We don't need the ideas of the world to make us complete. We're complete in Christ. And if you're feeling like you're not complete, you need to go to ask God, Lord, what's going on? You see, the devil's messing with your mind. Are you going to listen to what he's telling you or are you going to listen to what God says? God says you're complete in him. Believe it. Trust it. And think about the ideas, the philosophies of the world. Do they change? Yeah, all the time. They're constantly changing. Okay, compare that to the word of God. Has it changed at all? 
No, it's a constant in our lives. That's the wonderful thing. It's not like, well, I wonder what God's going to do today. I wonder what he's going to say. Maybe salvation is going to be something completely different than it was yesterday. Not at all. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we could take that to the bank. When we think about the law, we think, well, you know, that's, you know, years ago, people really don't follow the law today. Are you kidding me? It's still destroying lives. Several years ago, my pastor back in Illinois had a woman come into their church. And she, had, she was beaten down. She was depressed. She was discouraged, totally hopeless, a believer. But she went to a church that taught the law, that you had to do this and you can't do that. And she, was, she felt horrible. She couldn't achieve all that they wanted her to achieve. And so she was a mess. And I'm sure that all the people in that church, they missed the standards that were being set. There is no way anyone could keep those standards. Well, then why weren't they depressed? Because they didn't care. (laughs) They just, they lied. I'm doing fine. Everything's good. But they weren't. Because you can't live up to those standards. And my pastor talked to this woman about grace Many people in the church talked with her, befriended her, took care of her, and she attended Calvary for a while. But, you know, the law had such hooks into her life that she was drawn back to this church. And a short time later, my pastor got a call from this woman's sister. And she told my pastor, look, my sister committed suicide. And I'm calling you because I want you to do her service. I don't want her to. Ha- I don't want anything to do with the church she went to because they put such pressure on her on how to live, and she could never attain that, and it destroyed her life. The law kills. It does. Grace doesn't. That's the wonderful thing about grace. Paul in Second Corinthians three verses four through six said this. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, to kind of give you an idea of what's going on here, the flow here, Paul did not want the Corinthians to think that he was boasting of what he accomplished. And he says that, You know, it was Christ working through him that enabled him to do these things. Our sufficiency is from God. In fact, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now let me ask you this. How many of you feel that you are ready for God to use you now? And none of us should raise our hand, because none of us are ready. That's the point. We'll never feel adequate. Paul didn't say our sufficiency is in ourselves, our education, our experiences, our talents, or whatever. He said our sufficiency is from God. And we can rest in that. The Lord working in us and through us. Now, 
Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians 3, talks about us being bond slaves of Christ and this new covenant that we're to take to this dying world. And the Greek word for uh, covenant, this new covenant, Moulton and Milligan put it this way, that it's an arrangement made by one party with plenary power, which the other party may accept or reject but cannot alter. For a covenant offered by God to man was no compact between two parties, coming together on equal terms. In other words, this new covenant that God has established with us is a unilateral covenant. It's based on the faithfulness of God, the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary, and we receive that gift by faith. That's what we're to bring to people, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God. We're saved by grace through faith and not by the law through works. Again, in in Romans chapter 8, verses 2 through 4, Paul put it like this. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The law is good. The law is perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. It just can't save us. All the law does is show us how we are sinners separated from God, how far from God's perfection we are. And it brings death to us. But it's the spirit of God that brings us to the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ that gives us life. Remember when Moses was up on Mount Sinai to get the law and the children of Israel were down below and while he was up there getting the law, they're already breaking the commandments of God down below. And on that day, God judged him and 3,000 men died when the law was given. And on the day of Pentecost, as the gospel of grace was given, we see 3,000 souls, 3,000 men were saved. Again, remember what we read, the law kills, but the spirit gives life, the spirit of grace. Well, now as we move here into Galatians chapter 2, it it flows from what Paul was saying at the end of chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 18 and and read on, and it'll lead us again to where we're going to be at this evening. Look at Galatians 1, starting in verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by the face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith, which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God and me. Now look at verse 1 now in Galatians chapter 2. For Paul said, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Now, Paul's first visit to Jerusalem after his conversion experience is recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. And I believe Paul spoke of that in, in uh, the first chapter of Galatians. Here we are some 14 years later, Paul returns to Jerusalem, not because he wanted to go this time nor was compelled by man, but it says the Lord directed him to go by his spirit, and he went. Now, I think this is... Uh, 
the incident that's recorded in the book of Acts that Luke records for us in Acts chapter 15, where there was this debate going on about how Gentiles are being saved. Are they saved by grace or are they saved by grace and the law? And this was a conflict in the early church. There was a discussion going on. And so they had their first council meeting there in Jerusalem. James is the leader in the church in Jerusalem. And he's overseeing this. And he sends a letter to the Gentile churches in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, telling them basically that salvation is a gift of God. It's not of works. Now, here in Galatians, Paul is dealing with these Judaizers. And they're bringing, like I said, this false gospel and spreading this even here in Jerusalem. Think about it. The temple's there. You see this every day. And it's easy to get drawn back into it. And Paul is trying to show in Acts 15, and now here in the, to these Galatians, that there's no way you can mix grace and law. It doesn't make any sense. Because, as I said last time, when you add anything to grace, grace is unmerited favor. God's giving you something you don't deserve. So now if I'm adding good works to grace, what does that do to grace? It takes grace away. Now God owes me something because of my good works. You see, you can't add good works or the law to grace, not at all. It's all grace or it's not, nothing, no grace at all. Look at verse 3 of Galatians 2. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So Titus, a Greek, was not compelled to be circumcised. He was a Gentile. I don't know why you'd want to be circumcised. I mean, here's this adult. And you don't have to be for salvation. Circumcision doesn't save. The law doesn't save. Baptism doesn't save. Who saves? Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a real simpleton. I don't like to make things complicated, and God doesn't. He makes it very clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty simple. It's not complicated. We tend to add a lot of baggage to it. We shouldn't. We just destroy what God has said. And then these Judaizers were sneaking in, they're spying out the liberty that Paul had in Christ. They're probably jealous. And they were going to use it against Paul, but it didn't work. There wasn't a door open for them to spread their lies. And here's the thing that really spoke to me. You don't give a platform for false teachers to spread their lies to confuse the people. We see that happening in many churches today as they bring forth the social gospel. And what I mean by that is they take care of people and they feed people and they minister to the needs, but they don't share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. It's a social gospel. It's taking care of the physical needs of people. Now, there's nothing wrong with caring for people. We should care for people. We should take care of them. But if we only take care of their physical needs, they will die going to hell and we haven't helped them for eternity. We helped them for a very short period of time on this earth. 
We need to think of the big picture. We need to think of eternity. And I don't think these Judaizers were saved. That phrase, false brethren, in the Greek means pretended associates. It's been translated sham Christians. I kind of like that. Pseudo-Christians. And and you think of the the cults and you think of the so-called some of these Christian um, denominations and what they believe for salvation. And it's a work-based salvation. In fact, every religion, religion, every single one is a work-based religion. You have to work your way into heaven or whatever they call it, nirvana or whatever it is. You have to do this, don't do that, deny yourself this. You know, we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But in workspace theology, it's amazing me how great I am, right? We've taken Christ right out of the picture because now it's about what I have done. No, that's totally wrong. And yeah, there were sham Christians back then, and the same is true today. Because the law can't save you. It can only show how far, far short you have come to being saved. What the law does is it points you to the Savior, it points you to Jesus. It shows that you have missed the mark of perfection. And that's important. You have to know you failed, that you can't do it before you look to the Savior. We'll look at verse 6 of Galatians 2. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. You know, it doesn't matter what your position is or your title is. We're all one in the Lord. Christ died for all of us. We're all precious to him. And I love that. In God's eyes, he, he sees us as precious. Yeah, the world may look at us and think we're crazy, that we're goofy, but not God. I and mean, to me, that's really what counts, isn't it? You can be a nobody, and yet God will listen to you just as much as he'll listen to the most famous pastor or evangelist there is. He's not a respecter of persons. And just because someone is popular If they do something that's wrong, guess what? It needs to be confronted. You don't ignore false teaching because someone is more popular, better educated, or whatever. They have a big ministry. You don't want anything to happen to it. Hey, God's in control, but if they're doing something that's wrong, they need to be aware. I'm so thankful at Calvary Chapel of Manitowoc that if I ever started to go astray, there are a majority of people within that church who would confront me and take the necessary actions to correct me, get me back in line, or to have me removed. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's called accountability. None of us are perfect. Uh, I'll give you this example. It happened to me. I hate when God uses me as sermon illustrations, but he does. Some 18 years ago, I was teaching about David. And how David was tending his sheep, he's out in the field working with the sheep, and I got this revelation from God while I was teaching. I thought it was a revelation from God. You know how sometimes you think this is really good, yeah, and then you say it, and it's not so good? So I shared with the congregation, but you know how wonderful it was that here's David working out in the fields with his sheep, and David is wearing these cotton clothes made from you know the sheep. 
That's how close David was to his sheep. But I, again, felt pretty good. And then a farmer from our church came up to me and said, you know, Joe, uh, sheep don't produce cotton, they produce wool. I said, well, these sheep went through a cotton field and they picked up a bunch of, no, it didn't work. And it's so funny, you know, because people don't forget things. That was 18 years ago. They still give me a hard time about it. I used to get sheep that had pieces of cotton stuck to it, and they would give it to me. 18 years of that. So, yeah, I I try to be careful now that, man, this better be from the Lord. (laughs) Because that one sure wasn't. But uh, let me kind of give you an idea of what I mean here. Someone wrote this, false teaching exalts human wisdom and avoids or diminishes divine wisdom. When one accepts false teaching, God's unfailing infinite wisdom is rejected and the natural finite wisdom of fallible humans is embraced. Basically, the conflict between biblical truth and false teaching is a battle over what source authority is to be trusted. A person's authoritative source of truth for life and relationships will either be from humans, natural wisdom, typically disseminated via books and public presentations and broadcast media, or from God, divine wisdom stated in the scriptures and portrayed by Jesus Christ. In spite of efforts by human wisdom to improve scripture, any integration of false teaching and the truth of God's word is automatically deficient. Just like adding water to gasoline does not improve the quality of gasoline, nothing can be added to God's word to make it better. The Bible claims perfection and total sufficiency to deal with all aspects of life and relationships, so nothing can be added to improve its quality or benefits as the following verses indicate. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. 2 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 4. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Make no mistake about it. The word of God is our truth tester. It's our plumb line to show us what's in line or if someone's teaching is off. And yet, you know, we have these people with the new revelations uh, from God that go contrary to the scripture. Guess what? God's not wrong. The person is. You've got to bring everything into the light of God's word. And we've come up with this idea today that, you know, being in the 21st century, we've got to help God out because, you know, we are... Um, more sophisticated, intelligent today, and we have better ways of helping uh, us attain mental health than they did back in Jesus' day. I, I don't know, man. He says he's a, that he's a wonderful counselor. And you know what? 
He doesn't charge $250 an hour. He's free. He doesn't even take a vacation. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I can go to my counselor and say, Lord, what's going on here? What am I doing wrong? Something's wrong. Something's off. And he's right there to comfort us, encourage us, correct us. That's the wonderful thing about our God. We can go to him for these truths. Even us nobodies. And there are no nobodies in the body of Christ. Because God died for each of us. We're somebodies. He loves us. Well, back in Galatians 2, look at verse 7. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, or Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So, James, the half-brother of Jesus and the leader in the church in Jerusalem, Peter and John, were pillars in the church. Not because they sought the title, but that's just the way people looked at them. And it was these men that saw the power of God working in and through Paul, and they gave him and Barnabas the blessings to go forth with the gospel message of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Now, there are not two gospel, different gospel messages, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. There's just one. It's we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it, period. Now, what's interesting is that Peter's primary focus was to the Jews. Not exclusively. You remember early on, he went to the house of Cornelius. But here now, he's primarily, primarily focusing on the Jews. Paul was to the Gentiles. Now think about this for a minute, because church tradition. The Roman Catholic Church believes the Pope is the successor of Peter. But Peter's ministry was to who? To the Jews. That's kind of interesting. I think that the ministry of the Catholic Church then should be not to the Gentiles, but to the Jews. Because that's where Peter was focused upon. Yes, again, he went to the house of Cornelius and brought the gospel message, but that was early on, and now his primary focus was to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. And so they're giving these blessings to Paul and to Barnabas, and he says, just remember the poor, probably the saints in Jerusalem who were in need, because when you became a Christian in Jerusalem, you were a Jew, you became a Christian, you lost everything, your job, your family, you had nothing. And so that's probably who they were talking about, and Paul was more than glad to help take care of others. Well, verse 11, Galatians 2. But when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So Peter is 
visiting Paul's home church in Antioch. He joined their potluck, shared in communion with the Gentile believers. And then the Judaizers came in. And they must have been influential, powerful men. And Peter separated himself from the Gentiles, slowly but surely moved himself away because the Gentiles didn't keep the law of Moses. Now think about this. Did Peter know better? Absolutely he did. He spoke first to the Gentiles. He did. He went to Cornelius. In fact, in Acts 10, verses 44 through 48, we see that. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. This is at the house of Cornelius. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnified God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. So, yeah, he knew. Gentiles were saved by grace. Acts chapter 11, Peter defends his actions before the believers in Jerusalem. And the conclusion in Acts eleven eighteen, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And think about this. Didn't Jesus eat with sinners, with publicans, with lepers? Absolutely. Now, Peter, he's isolating himself from these Gentile believers. And Paul, what does he do? He rebukes him in front of everyone. You think, well, that's not nice. It's not nice, but it was right. You see, no matter how you look at Peter's actions, they were wrong. And it caused a domino effect with Barnabas following Peter and the rest of the Jewish believers. They were segregating themselves because of what Peter did. He was a leader in the church, and the other Jews were following his lead. You know, in one aspect or another, we're all leaders in a church, in our home, at our workplace. And we have a responsibility to lead people in a godly way and not lead them astray. And for these Jewish believers, they were hypocrites because they couldn't keep the law. They understood that. They knew that they were saved by grace. But here they were, separating themselves from these Gentiles. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in a manner of Gentiles, and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, how much flesh shall be justified? No flesh shall be justified. Wow. This had nothing to do where they were sitting at the table. But it had everything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth. These Judaizers were saying Gentiles were not saved because they didn't keep the law of Moses. They weren't circumcised. They didn't eat kosher or whatever. 
And Paul says, you guys aren't speaking the truth regarding the gospel. And by Peter's actions, he was agreeing with them. He was endorsing them, even though I don't believe for a minute that Peter believed that. But his actions spoke otherwise. In fact, in in Acts 15, verses 10 and 11, at this church meeting trying to figure out if Gentiles should keep the law or not, Peter says, now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. In other words, Peter's saying, look, we as Jews couldn't even keep the law. Why are we putting this heavy yoke upon the Gentiles to keep it? We couldn't do it. And the conclusion for Peter is pretty strong. He says Jews will be saved in the same manner as Gentiles. That's powerful to me. He didn't say Gentiles are saved in the same manner as Jews because some may get confused and say, well, that means they kept the law. Yes, they believe in Jesus, but they also kept the law. No. He said that Jews are saved the same as Gentiles are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He drove that point home. That's what Peter believed. But here his action said something far different. And Paul rebukes him in front of everyone so all could hear and not be led astray. You know, all these people are following Peter. Paul wants them to see this is wrong. Don't go down that path. And I'm sure, you know, you could have heard a pin drop at that point, right? I bet it got really quiet in there. And Paul says, look, again, the the Jews are not even justified by the works of the law. It's by faith. It makes no sense to circumcise Gentiles for them to keep the law to be saved. Not at all. Now, here's the thing. Because I've heard this teaching and it's, it's pretty horrible. But doesn't that give us a license to sin? Hey, it's all covered under grace. And I actually heard a teaching out of, actually it was Galatians chapter 5, where it basically said, you know what? It doesn't matter what you do. Don't worry about it. It's all covered by the blood. Which is absolutely true. But if you are living that way, there is something wrong with your heart. Because it took Almighty God to become flesh and blood to pay in full the penalty for my sins, for your sins. It was an unbelievable sacrifice that he made. And then we take sin so lightly. We should never do that. Never. And that's the problem with this idea, hey, it's under grace, we're okay. Check your heart. We don't keep the law to be saved. We keep the law out of love. We do it out of a love relationship. We want to obey the Lord. We want to follow. Why? Because he has what's best for our lives. I can tell you right now, that in my house, my wife and I, we've been married for 38 years. And there are no commandments on the wall that my wife has put up. Joe shall do this. Joe shall do that. Joe shall not do this. Joe shall not do that. It doesn't even say that I can't date other women. Shocking as that is. Why don't I? Because I love her. She doesn't have to have a law like that in the house. I do it because I love her. We don't obey the Lord's commands because for our salvation. 
We do it because we totally are in love with him and he has what's best for our lives. We try to live a life that's pleasing to God and out of that love, it doesn't justify us, but it's evidence for our faith. Martin, one writer put it like this. Martin Luther said that if the article of justification by faith is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost. In the last section of chapter 2, Paul was inspired to introduce the most essential doctrine in the epistle, a doctrine that he had preached and explained to the Galatians on many occasions. He uses the verb form of justification four times in verses 16 and 17, and the noun form once in verse 21, where it is rendered righteousness. Now, in the New Testament, these and other forms of the same Greek term are very, variously translated by such English words as justify, justification, righteousness, just, righteous, and justified. The basic term was originally used forensically of a judge, judges declaring an accused person not guilty and right before the law. It was the opposite of being declared guilty and condemned. Throughout scripture, justification refers to God's declaring a sinner to be guiltless on the basis of faith in him. It is the free and gracious act by which God declares a sinner right with himself, forgiving, pardoning, restoring, and accepting him on the basis of nothing but trust in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Absolutely. It's his finished work, not my finished work. It's a gift that I receive by faith. Look at what he says in verse 17. But if, but if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So picture in your mind what's going on here. The Judaizers, along with Peter and the rest of the Jews, are on one side, and the Gentile believers are on the other side. And Paul wants them to all know the truth about salvation even raising some questions that the Judaizers might bring up. Some may say, look, if we're saved by faith, our sins are forgiven, how can we still struggle with sin? And if we do struggle with sin, then Christ must be a minister of sin because he didn't make us right enough if we are still struggling with sin. And Paul says, certainly not. Banish the thought, of course not. We are justified by Christ and not by works, and yes, we still struggle with sin, But it doesn't mean that Jesus is the author or the approver of sin in our life. We still deal with these bodies of flesh and blood. It's a battle. The flesh wars against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. And Paul concludes basically by saying, look, if you try to keep the law, you're going to find more sin. It's not going to justify you. It will condemn you. We're justified in Christ, and by trying to keep the law doesn't make us righteous before God, because only Jesus can do that. That's absolutely true. When I was first saved, I thought I was a pretty good person. Here I am some 30 plus years, and the more I read about the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, I see myself as a dirty, rotten sinner. I see myself worse than I was 30-some years ago. Why? Because I'm learning more about the holiness of God and who I am. Luther said this. He said, to give a short definition of a Christian, a Christian is not somebody who has no sin, but somebody against whom God no longer chalks sin because of his faith in Christ. 
This doctrine brings comfort to conscience in serious trouble. That's the wonderful thing. It brings comfort to us. If I had to wake up every single day and do this and do that to be saved, I would feel horrible every single day because I can never attain the perfection that God wants. And that's where the devil messes with our minds. That's why Paul in Ephesians said, put on the helmet of salvation. What did the helmet do for the soldier? Protected his head, right? Why do we need the helmet of salvation? Where does the enemy attack us? Our minds. Really, you call yourself a Christian? Did you hear what you said? Look what you did. Look how you said, what you said to your boss. Look what you said to your wife. Look what you said to your husband. And he messes with our minds and goes, yeah, I'm not worthy to be saved. I'll let you in on a little secret. You're not. Just accept that. You are not worthy to be saved. It's a free gift. God has given you eternal life that is found in Christ Jesus, not because you deserve it. It's grace. Amazing grace, right? Wow. That brings comfort to me. I hope it does to you. Look at verse 19. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Think of it like this. If you were robbing a bank and got caught in the process as you were escaping, you're shot, you're killed, are you going to go on trial for your crime? No, you're dead. They don't bring dead people and put them on trial. They already are dead. I mean, yeah, you were guilty, you broke the law, you should be punished, but death kind of closes the case. There's nothing else that anyone can do. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's dead to the law, he's living for God. The law's not dead. The law's good, the law's perfect, but we are not trying to live under the law to be justified because that keeps us in bondage. We're dead to it. It has no power over us to convict us. Paul in Romans 3 verses 19 through 20 said, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Yeah, the law just shows us we're sinners. He died to the law so he can live unto God. He crucified the flesh. He gave his life up so that the life of Christ would live in him. That's the wonderful thing in our lives. You know, God is living in us. Almighty God. And he's done this for us. And to say, well, you know, Thanks, but I guess it's not enough. I'm going to have to work my way into heaven. Makes no sense to me. And Paul's going to deal with that point as he concludes this chapter. But if you want to live by the law, you got a huge problem because James says in James 2.10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. Did you ever think about that? I mean, we fail so miserably, there's no way we can keep the law, okay? But imagine, you know, you live 83 years and you're doing perfect, forget the original sin, we'll just 
eliminate that one from this picture for right now. But you're, you did perfect. You haven't committed any sin in your life for 83 years. And someone cuts you off the road and, yeah, well, you blew it. What does the law say? Well, you're guilty of everything now. You're guilty. I'm so thankful for grace. It's so refreshing. And again, and, you know, years ago we used to have this uh, church close to our town. It was called the House of Yahweh. And they followed the law. I actually know a person, his wife comes to our church, who attended that church. And as you look at the pastor and his preaching, he was an angry man. It was always, you know, if you go to church on Sunday, it's the mark of the beast and you're going to die, you know, and, and all that stuff. You know, it was always beating, beating, because you're not keeping the law, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. And, you know, I was depressed watching that. But, yeah, there's no love, there's no mercy, there's no grace, there's nothing. The law just says you're guilty and you die. I actually talked with one of the guys because they were preparing to, I think, get bricks together to send them to Israel to build the next temple. I, I told them they have enough rocks in Israel. I think they'll do fine. But um, I had asked them a question. I said, so, you, you know, you keep the law for salvation. And he said, yeah, yeah, we, we try to do our best. And I said, well, James says, you know, if you keep the law, a whole law, and you stumble at one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. I said, so... It's better that you don't know anything about the law because you're guilty. And that was the last time I heard of him, from him. But at least he heard the truth. You're gonna, if you're going to live by the law, you will die by the law. That's just the reality. We can't keep it. And if we could, do you ever think why Jesus came then? Why did Jesus come if we could keep the law and get to heaven? There's no point. Do you know the first religion that was ever created? It was the religion of fig leaves back in the Garden of Eden. Think about that. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. It's a works relationship. They covered themselves. And of all the plants that are out there, fig leaves are not the first choice. They're very itchy from what I understand. I've never tried this, but that's what I understand. Why did they choose a plant like that? Maybe because they felt, you know what, maybe if we, you know, if it, if it bothers us and it irritates us a little bit, that'll be more acceptable before God. Well, that's like people today, you know, I'm going to live in poverty and God will accept me more if I do this and I do that. That's a works relationship with God. And what did God say? Those are really nice Tommy Hilfig's jeans you got there or whatever, right? Did God say anything about the fig leaves? No. That's what I find amazing. It's not even God rebuking them for putting the fig leaves together. What did he do? He took an animal and skinned, killed the animal and skinned the animal, which I believe was a lamb, and covered Adam and Eve with the coats of the animal, this animal the death of the innocent, to cover the sins of the guilty. What did Jesus Christ do? The death of the innocent, almighty God, for the sins of the guilty, 
you and me. It's grace. It's all about his shed blood. Well, let's finish up with verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain, or he died for nothing. Absolutely. It makes no sense for Jesus Christ, God Almighty, to become flesh and blood, go to the cross of Calvary to die for our sins. It neutralizes the grace of God. There was no other way. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was praying, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. There was no other way. It was the cross, the shed blood, the atonement for our sins. That was it. And we need to understand that. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain, or he died for nothing. Do you think Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who you know, maintains all the planets and stars and you know, everything out there in our lives, knows the number of hairs on our head, missed the mark on that one? He goes, wow, you know, I didn't see that coming. They could have just been good enough to get into heaven. I guess I didn't have to come? That's foolishness. And please understand, like I said, all religions that I know of have a works-based salvation. They do. Even the Roman Catholic Church. One article said, for Catholics, good works preserve and increase their personal righteousness for their final justification. They try and deny it, but that's exactly what they said, their personal righteousness for their final justification. Let me ask you, how much good works are needed? Do you ever know if you have enough good works to be saved? No, you don't. And you know what? You won't in this life. And so we have a place for you. It's called purgatory. What happens in purgatory? That is where you atone for your sins so you can get to heaven. So Jesus Christ then didn't atone for all my sins And him sitting down at the right hand of the Father indicating that the work is finished, I guess it's not? Let me ask you this, who are you going to believe, God or man? I'm going to believe what God said. Hebrews 1.3, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Again, he sat down because the work was finished. 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from most of our sins. No, from all sin. All sin. Hebrews 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. There it is. You're being perfect it forever. So once you come to know Christ, guess what? The work he began in you, he's going to complete. Hallelujah, praise God. I'm going to be with him one day. I'm with him now, but boy, I'm going to be standing before him one day. Probably not standing, but on my knees, saying thank you, Lord, for saving me a sinner. He's perfected us. We haven't perfected ourselves. What's interesting is, You know, we've got this big push today for 
Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church to come together to be united to reconcile our differences, which is pretty much saying that, you know, Protestants, you need to let go of grace and you need to understand that you've got to come back to the Roman Catholic Church. That's pretty much what they're saying. You doubt that? Well, the Roman Catholic Church says in the Sixth Century Canon 9 of Trent, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. So we're all going to hell, according to the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church wants us to join forces with them because we believe we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We need to understand, they believe in a works-based salvation. All religions do except Christianity, because Christianity has God coming down and saving sinful man. All other religions have man reaching up to God, trying to reach up to him. You'll never attain that. You'll never be able to reach up to God. Anything apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us from our sins is another gospel. We have to avoid it because it's not going to help us. It won't save us. Paul said in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved, through faith in that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hope you are seeing here that we are not saved by works at all. But works come into our lives because we love the Lord. They flow from our lives. We do, our good works are to glorify our Father in heaven, not for our salvation, but identification, our love for him. But so easy in the church to make all kinds of rules and regulations that you have to follow this and you have to do that to be saved. And Jesus said, come, all to, come unto me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The, the law is a heavy burden upon us. But grace, it just takes that burden away because the work has been completed by Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this evening. And just this wonderful gift of grace that you've extended to us. And it's not something we deserve. We will never deserve it. But you freely give it to us because you loved us. And Lord, thank you for that. And may we never take it for granted. May we never take it lightly, Lord. May we strive against sin, Lord. May we war against sin and live unto you. But understand we're saved by grace. And what a wonderful gift that is. If there are any struggling here this evening with that, Lord, where the enemy has really messed with their minds, Lord, just bring your grace upon them. Bring your comfort and peace into their lives. We thank you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.